0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the 170th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID 19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of the digital divide, the tech industry, and COVID 19 with Roger Cheng. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 16, 2020, there are 1,321,712 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 11,114,151 cases in the United States, that's up from cases reported on Friday, and there are now a total of 245,758 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 243,387 reported on Friday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline, Colleen Stuber, Creative, Entrepreneurial, and a Caregiver to All Dies of COVID-19. This obituary appeared August 7th and was written by Mora McDonald. It appeared in the Seattle Times. Handmade beaded jewelry, barbecue-flavored meatloaf, knitted baby blankets, and Bureka pastries. These were just some of the ways in which Colleen Stuber showed her love for family and friends. Throughout her life, she loved to take care of people and to share whatever she had. She was a server by nature, said her daughter, Sonia Garmenian, always ready to lend a helping hand to anyone in need. A lifelong resident of the Seattle area, Stuber was born Colleen Kola-Almo, in Bremerton and graduated from Bremerton High School. At the time of her April 21st death from the novel coronavirus at age 81, she was resident of the Peters Creek Retirement and Assisted Living Community in Redmond. Stuber had lived there for seven years and her daughter said adored the staff and residents considering them her second family. She was kind of the mother hen there, said Daryl Eisenhower, a friend and fellow resident at Peters Creek. She was always interested in everybody, in how they were doing, a real warm, loving person. A woman who exuded positivity, Stuber spent her life joyfully caring for her family and for the many people she met along her adventurous career path. At heart, her daughter said, Stuber was an entrepreneur. As a divorced young mother in the mid-1970s, she transformed her love of cooking into a West Seattle restaurant, Hungry Man's Cafe. She got a financial backer and did all the cooking and baking herself, said Gormanian, recalling, childhood memories of twirling on the stools at the cafe counter. It was, she said, an old-fashioned family-ish kind of place, really warm and inviting. People felt like they were coming to her home and eating in her living room. Stuber knew her customers on a first-name basis and happily served them comfort food favorites, her famous meatloaf, ice cream-laden pies with crust made from scratch. Portions were enormous. Nobody ever left hungry. Eventually, Running the restaurant single-handedly became too much, and Stuber turned her considerable energy to other work. In the early 1980s, she became certified as a home health care aide, working with patients on hospice. She loved the elderly and loved taking care of people when they were sick, Garminian said. It takes a special person to have a gift like that. Stuber, who had a deep religious faith, took care of her patients like family until they passed away. She was their angel who delivered them to God after she was done taking care of them. Though Stuber loved the work, eventually, physical limitations necessitated another career change. Drawn by her love of feeding people, she found work as a food demonstrator at grocery stores, becoming, her daughter said, a top salesperson for the brands she represented, and as an assistant cook at a seniors community, where she served three meals a day until her retirement. She truly had a passion for anything she did. I always admired that a lot about her, said her grandson, Jaden Luke. He described his grandmother's attitude as, whatever it is you're doing, do it the very best you can with a smile on your face. In her retirement, Stuber still loved to cook for her family, including three children, six six grandchildren, and one great-grandchild. Though she was known as Hurricane Nana for the mess she'd leave behind in the kitchen, she would bring out every pot and pan and never clean it, said Luke. Ever creative, she enjoyed drawing, jewelry making, and knitting baby blankets for all her grandchildren, even if the babies were purely theoretical. Giving things to people made her so happy, Garmanian said. She derived her pleasure from that. And Stuber kept busy helping her loved ones manage their lives. Luke, a local musician, said that his grandmother was his unofficial businesswoman, coming to all of his gigs and making sure that he was being paid properly. She would walk up to people who booked me and ask them if they could pay me more, Luke said, laughing. At one point, he said, Stuber went to a venue's Facebook page after Luke had played a concert there and posted, great job, sweetie, how much did they pay you? Hers was a life cut short too suddenly, Eisenhower said, sadly, that Stuber had a a bucket list wish of going up in a hot air balloon, appropriate for a woman who would end conversations with I love you to the moon and bang, and that he had hoped to do that with her later this year, but it was one filled with boundless good cheer and love. Armenian summed up her mother's life philosophy with a lyric from an old Nat King Cole song, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. Okay, let's turn to our conversation today. Very excited to have Roger Cheng here today. And Roger is the executive editor and head of CNET News, where he manages everything from daily breaking stories larger investigative packages. Prior to this, he was on the telecommunications beat and wrote for Dow Jones Newswires and the Wall Street Journal for nearly a decade. Roger, thank you so much for coming on COVID Calls today.
1: Thanks for having
0: me. So i like to start the way I usually do just to find out where you're calling in from and how the pandemic is looking there today.
1: Uh, I'm calling in from Great Neck uh, in Long Island. It's a suburb right outside of Queens. Uh, things are okay, although I I couldn't honestly say what it's like outside since I haven't actually been outside today. <laughs> I, I rarely spend too much time out there, um, but you know, as with other places, the you know the number of cases have have ticked up. So um, just being extra mindful of uh, you know where I am and staying safe.
0: How are you managing a newsroom from your? Office at home. I mean, I've asked, I've talked to lots of journalists on COVID calls, and I'm astounded by the work you're all doing collectively. But how do you keep up with it?
1: Well, we, we've long had flexibility in terms of where our reporters can work. Uh, I have a number of reporters who had worked remotely even pre-COVID, uh, and so yeah, you know, we we do things that most businesses do. We coordinate over Slack. We uses we use Zoom a lot. Um, I get on the phone and just talk to people constantly, and so. It is just a matter of uh, maintaining lines of communication and being a little bit more proactive about that, uh, given the fact that we're just we're not all together anymore. So it is uh, it's tough. It's tougher than if we were in the office together. But it's as we have found, it's very manageable.
0: One of the things I wonder about, you know, in, in your business, the development and the uh, kind of nourishment of, of sources, relationships with sources is something we tend to think it's done in person, at least initially, you meet someone in person and build some trust. Uh, I don't want you to give away all your trade secrets, but I am curious, Like, how do, how do you manage to do that in the Zoom format?
1: I, it's a little bit tougher. Uh, being the role that I am, I, I tend to interact a lot, more, a lot more with my reporters than with sources. I, I obviously have the sources that I've built up over the last two decades, and so these are folks I still talk to on a regular basis. But uh, you're right, it's a challenge. Uh, meeting new people, establishing relationships—you uh, know, my—I've built my career, and a lot of my more senior reporters have built their careers on being able to form these relationships, uh, usually in person. Essentially, charming a lot of these folks to to kind of help you out or down the line, and so not being able to do that is, is a little bit tough. Not being able to grab a drink with someone or breakfast with someone and have a casual conversation. Uh, everything has to be very proactive right there's very very little that's spontaneous you can't run into someone or you can't have a quick a quick chat with someone anymore it has to be something you put in your calendar or the zoom link uh, it's all very formal now and that that takes away from some of that uh, the kind of schmoozing element that's required for the reporting gig but the thing of it is we've evolved just like everyone else has you know we, we interact a lot more on slack a lot more on email uh, things are things aren't so reliant on human human face-to-face communication all the time now.
0: I was lucky enough to have Blair Levin on to talk about the digital divide a few weeks ago, and I'm really excited to have this conversation in in the context of that one. I'm going to ask you a question that I asked Blair, which was just at the sort of broadest level. Um, Can you describe how you see the digital divide issue in America today? I mean, it's been an ongoing discussion all of our adult lives, I mean, since the 1990s, certainly. Um, and yet, and I think it had fallen out of the front pages a little bit. And yet this year, it is back, and we're grappling with it in so many different dimensions. Can you take me into your thinking a little bit about that issue?
1: Yeah, you're right in that the, the lockdown, the, the pandemic, us being stuck at home has really shined a, a new light on the fact that so many of us lack basic broadband access. Something, somewhere near 18 million uh, households don't have access to, to broadband internet. Uh, and and I would say that it's it's basically shining a light on a problem that's been there for a long time, but it's, it's gotten worse. Um, and, and the fact that we do have a digital divide, it's made that gap between the have and have nots much, much wider. If you have access to broadband, if you have a career that's built around uh, digital information, you're probably doing Pretty well, if not better than before. For a lot of folks who don't have, who, who live in areas that don't have broadband access, who don't have those opportunities, you're probably a lot worse off. Um, and so it's, to me, it's, it's shining a light on the problem, the fact that this is a huge problem and it's gotten worse and it's really widened that gap.
0: The, I guess there's a few different angles on it I want to kind of explore with you. One, I, let's start with the corporate side of things. How have the service providers risen or not risen to the challenge in the midst of the pandemic. It was some government encouragement, I think, but I don't know much about that in terms of dollars and cents. And I know for a little while uh, in Philadelphia, for example, um, you know Comcast was making some limited amount of broadband access available at, at lower costs. Uh, I don't actually know how that how that ended up. Um, how are they doing?
1: Well, so initially, they uh, the, the broadband providers actually did a pretty good job of keeping people connected. And this was part of the FCC's Keep America Connected Pledge. Uh, this is a pledge that basically all ISPs around the country agreed to, which was that they, they weren't going to penalize or cut service off to anyone who uh, couldn't afford to pay their bills because of the lockdown, because people weren't working, they, they couldn't pay their bills. If you could prove that you were affected from the lockdown Uh, you can keep your service. Uh, That pledge ended over the summer, um, the the timeline. So uh, I've talked, we've tried to get more answers out of these ISPs about what they're doing now. And a lot of it is, well, we're adjusting folks to cheaper plans or we're working with folks individually. There isn't a clear guideline anymore. And in some cases, uh, take the case of AT&T, they've actually pulled away some of their their DSL line businesses. So some folks are actually losing uh, the ability to even get Broadband now. if They wanted to sign up for. It. They 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 aren't they aren't necessarily you know pulling up stakes and mm. just getting rid of the DSL business for folks who have existing lines. But if you were looking to sign up for new service, uh, you had one less option in a lot of different areas.
0: Mm. And so the take us through like now versus the beginning of the pandemic. Do you actually think that the the digital divide has grown greater than throughout this this time period?
1: I think the, in terms of the sheer numbers, that's really unclear whether or not there are more folks who are disconnected. Uh, It probably is roughly the same. I think the, my issue is that if you didn't have broadband before all this, your life is markedly worse now than it was pre pre COVID. And so the opportunities, whatever opportunities you had pre COVID really kind of vanished because you didn't have access to broadband.
0: So let's go a little bit further with that. Like sticking with the business side, I, I wonder about small businesses that have had to somehow adapt their business online. Can you? What are you seeing as, in terms of trends there? Small businesses able to make that kind of adjustment?
1: I mean, we've definitely seen it with uh, small businesses. You know, restaurants. Um, you know, really mom and pop shops that are. Uh, participating in things like DoorDash, those those kind of delivery services, uh, being able to sign up online uh, for for takeout or for delivery, you're definitely seeing businesses, big and small, really kind of adapt to the fact that we don't necessarily want to go into a store anymore to do business, either shop or to you know get food or to dine. So you definitely see adjustments um, and and businesses that are. I think more nimble and, or have been more nimble, been able to go and adjust to, you know, using an app or using online services, have been able to weatherstorm a little bit better than, say, some of their less nimble counterparts.
0: Were you surprised that Zoom became the sort of default platform that everyone was going to use from universities, even down to small businesses?
1: Uh, yes and no. It, uh, you know, it was clearly a very common platform. Uh, it was pretty widely used. Um, I was a little surprised in the fact that there are some known security risks with, with Zoom in terms of, uh, you know, people being able to kind of jump in and, that you know, the term Zoom bombing became a thing mm-hmm. early on. They, they clearly closed a lot of those, those loopholes. But, uh, yeah, it, it was interesting to me that it, it, it kind of blew up the way it did. But you have to keep in mind that some of the other options out there, whether it was Skype or WebEx, uh, they weren't as broadly used and so zoom just sort of had a, a clear runway to growth for a while there
0: it's I was you know was sort of racking my brain for a moment when a, a single company becomes the default in the middle of a disaster like this I, I can't really think of another of another example like that I mean it's almost like the old days when with with phone service you you could choose whatever you were told was your choice basically I mean it seemed like You're mentioning there were other products in the marketplace, but it seems like nobody deliberated much and they went right for Zoom.
1: Yeah, there was sort of a viral uh, aspect to it because so many folks had business accounts and they were able to kind of extend that to, you know, the friends and family. I mean, I know I did that a lot. I just used my corporate account to get past whatever the free limits were. And so that had kind of a viral effect. There were other services, right? House Party came about because of this. Uh, but but a lot of these just sort of failed to catch on the way Zoom did.
0: Mm. But what what are you seeing in, in some of these other domains? Like, uh, well, I should mention by the way, I use Streamyard. They don't pay me to promote them, but um, it is interesting that some of these smaller platforms are also out there and quite good, um, particularly for this kind of a for this kind of a discussion. But let, let's talk about um, telehealth for a second. Uh, there's a an area where it seemed like there had been a lot of discussion for years. You know, it's possible. It's possible. We just need an innovator to show us how it's done. And then all of a sudden, it's not an innovator that does it. It's a disaster that does it.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, you know, I've talked with doctors and uh, healthcare providers for a long time who have said that yes, this is this is very doable. We could do this. Unfortunately, it's it's sort of the lack of momentum. It's a momentum issue when you are set in your ways of doing things. And for the healthcare industry, it's you know going into the office, making your appointment. Uh, when when a whole business model is built around that, it is difficult to change things. You you do have to often throw in, as terrible as it sounds, something like this pandemic, a disaster that basically kickstarts uh, a different way of thinking. Uh, and yeah, when social distancing became the priority. Well, that forced a lot of these healthcare providers, these doctors' offices, to start rethinking how they deliver care. Uh, and you know, there were I, I, for years I had uh, written about or talked to folks who had, uh, you know, telemedicine apps um, being able to do a checkup remotely via an app. Tons of these startups trying these, tr- trying the trying and failing really to put these out there and make this a broader thing. And I know these services are kind of out there, but they're just folks aren't even aware of it. I think. The, the fact that this social distancing, the, the pandemic sort of hit, and we were all forced to rethink how we want these services delivered to us, that really kind of was the big catalyst for really bringing telehealth to the forefront.
0: What do you think were the, the holdups for that? It was that uh, on the patient side, just not enough patients really um, thought that's the way you see the doctor, or was it on the other side in terms of investment of the infrastructure for the medical practice to be able to actually do? I'm assuming there's um, some pretty significant investment. It's not just setting up a, a laptop. There's a lot of backend, I'm sure cameras and various other things that have to be purchased and learned and, and maintained.
1: Absolutely. It's pretty much a new brand, a business model, right? And in, in, in terms of insurance, how do you bill for it? There are a lot of considerations. Uh, I, I would say it's a little bit of both sides, uh, You know, like I said, for, for doctors and for the healthcare industry, there was a lack of a catalyst to drive that change. When you're set in your ways, set in your business model, it is hard to make those changes. And, and sort of on the consumer or the patient front, uh, yeah, it's not, uh, I like, even personally, I would prefer to have a doctor see me in person to examine me and, and give me sort of a, a full rundown of my, my health. Uh, that's obviously a lot less desirable now. But, uh, you know, pre COVID, that was, I don't know if I necessarily would have wanted. Uh, you know, remote diagnosis remote health diagnostics. Um, now it's it's definitely a lot more of an appealing uh, appealing factor.
0: So yeah, mm-hmm. And the elephant in the room with all this is education. So what are you what are you thinking now? You've seen you saw the spring go remote for colleges, universities and and k through twelve, but not many k through twelve were not able to make that transition. And then we come into the fall where more K through 12 was able to make that transition. What are the trends you were watching for there, particularly sort of on the technology side, knowing the digital divide that you do, knowing the companies that are out there that were ready to provide consulting? I mean, some of these big school districts just need a lot of consulting, as I understand it, just to think through the problem of how you're going to address this. Do, Do we buy laptops for every child? Do we do we provide for students who don't have uh, broadband internet. Should school districts provide that? I mean, just complication on complication.
1: yeah, you you bring up a an excellent question, and there are just so many different moving parts. i'll try to I'll try to take them bit by bit. yeah, and uh, in, in terms of schools kind of uh, figuring out how to do this stuff remotely, we've seen this it and it varies from district to district. but we've seen, uh, obviously, school shut down in the spring. Um, and, and I have a, I have two kids, one one who's too young for school, but one who was affected, which made my life immeasurably more complicated. Mm. Um, but I, as I saw with some some districts had their act together, others, even going into the the fall when they had several months of prepare, I saw many school districts who just didn't really still have their act together. Um, there are, there definitely, you raise a lot of questions whether or not, uh, schools have the the right equipment, the right infrastructure, whether or not they're supplying the right equipment, uh, to their kids or to their students, whether or not they even need to, or if it's the parents burden, uh, you know, it really depended on the district and frankly, how, how well funded they were. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we, we've, we've written a number of stories about, um, the competition between school districts for equipment. You know, in California, in Northern California, you know, right outside of Silicon Valley, some of the poor districts in those areas really struggled to find uh, equipment that they could provide to their students, Chromebooks uh, or laptops. And and these are schools that are just, you know, 30 minutes away from Apple, Google, some of the biggest tech companies in the world, they still struggled to find equipment. Um, And then if you look elsewhere, uh, in the country, uh, you know, sort of on the East Coast, in, in areas where you're you're further away from those tech cities or the, the 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 tech capitals, and it's it's really a struggle for these schools to provide the right equipment uh, for remote learning. And I think that's why it still it still continues to be a real problem. And a lot of it goes again goes back to funding and whether or not they can adequately fund these programs. I've seen uh, school districts that Sort of, they have, totally have their act together. They're, they're well funded. They're sort of af, come from affluent neighborhoods. The programs are great. They're very mindful of the fact that these these kids are staring at a screen, and so they there's interactive elements, there are memes that make it interesting that keep students engaged. On the flip side, I've seen you know schools sort of struggle to have any sort of remote work uh, element to it, even if these kids are not able to go to school because the kids don't have the equipment couldn't afford the equipment or the districts couldn't couldn't buy the equipment and supply it to those kids um to the point where a lot of it is i've seen buses school buses drive out to neighborhoods with mobile hotspots to get kids oh, connected right. yeah but th- but the problem is some of these kids don't even have the necessary laptops to run right. the wi-fi so they've got to work on their phones like it's it's a really sad state and again it, it goes back to like the situation of haves and have-nots in, in terms of uh what you see being deployed by schools
0: did it it seemed to me early on it was in the summertime when this discussion for the fall was really getting going um it it seemed like it was being portrayed as kind of a binary choice was coming the districts would either remain remote and they would get better at that or that the focus would be more on making classrooms safe and the kids would come back and what i'm seeing you know this much better than i do and that sort of curious to get your take on this is actually the ones that is truly hybrid. We're seeing every type of hybridity and that students who are actually going back into classrooms, even in states where they sort of drew a hard line, like the students are coming back, they're still having to provide, the teachers are having to do hybrid lessons, some amount of time for students who are there physically, some amount of time for students who are are distant. And then the sort of pass between, you know, students who may start in one and end in another domain. So if a district wanted to get away from this digital divide problem and say, hey, we're just going back to school, they've still had to confront it, it seems like.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. It's, uh, there was no real solution. And yeah, I've seen a lot of the, the kind of hybrid solutions put into place. Um, but you know unfortunately because of the you know the more recent rise in cases a lot of the, a lot of those efforts had to be pulled back you know here in New York City I think parents are they're staring at the the infection rates the to see if they go above a certain level because if they go above a certain level you know all in-school learning gets shut down again and we're sort of starting from scratch so it's um, yeah, so the, the idea of the digital divide—it's regardless of whether or not you are in school learning or you're working or you're uh, learning remotely—that plays a key role.
0: So a lot of what you're you're saying again—it kind of comes down to some older, more entrenched problems that seem like they were pretty predictable. If it was a, a a big city school district that had funding issues, you could have predicted they were not going to be able to make this this adjustment quickly. So. I mean, it's kind of an obvious question, but I, I really want to hear what you what you think about it. Why has the government, to what extent, has the government met that need? And, I, and I'm curious not only at the federal level, the Department of Education, but also state governments, because it seems to me that a lot of municipalities have kind of been left on their own with this.
1: Yeah, that is. Uh, it's an excellent question, and it's 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 really complicated. It's. Why we haven't really gotten a good solution, I think, is uh, it, it's not necessarily the most, I guess, um, a- attractive political issue. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there, there, there are obviously a lot more higher profile uh, issues being bandied about, whether it's racial justice or gun control, climate change, um, broadband access. It's been one of those issues that I think everyone sort of agrees upon is something we need, but the, the nuance in terms of how we get it uh, has sort of kept any real momentum from taking place. Because, you know, there are, you would you would think that it's a universal issue, but when you kind of pull in the, you know, I had a, I had a similar conversation with Blair Levin about this uh, as well as a number of other folks. Generally Democrats tend to uh, favor funding for more urban areas where you know where cost is the issue uh, whereas Republicans tend to want to address the problem in rural areas where access is an issue and, and the truth of it is, is there are prob- problems on both sides and both sides need to be funded um, but it's it's uh, the unfortunate reality that like the, the, no one can sort of get on the same page. On how to actually solve these problems, and I think that's sort of the bigger issue.
0: I suppose as we make a transition into a new administration and a new Secretary of Education, it strikes me that's going to be the first question that any uh, Democrat will ask in a confirmation hearing: is What's your plan to deal with schools during the pandemic?
1: I would hope so. Um, you know, President-elect Biden has a you know twenty billion dollar plan to invest in broadband around the country. Hopefully there's some element of that that's carved out to, to specifically target uh, education. And then there are programs in place. The FCC runs a sort of a lifeline program um, to offer more public broadband connections. Um, I think they, they, uh, they finance, uh, you know, wi- Wi-Fi in, in schools and libraries to give more students access. But um, there are little nuances to those rules that, that have prevented the government from being more proactive in terms of lending more assistance to to some of these students.
0: Over the years of the Trump administration, we heard uh, continually about the coming investment in infrastructure. Seemed like it was always, Infrastructure Week was always right around the the corner. And before the Trump administration, many administrations back, we've heard that infrastructure was this space where Democrats and Republicans could certainly come together because it's gonna be investment, that unions are gonna get something out of it, tech companies are gonna get something, there's something in it for everyone. And yet it's still not there. So, I mean, I guess it's kind of a big question, but I'm curious, particularly on this issue of digital infrastructure, We we will never have a better demonstration of the need than what we're seeing right now. What are some of the things that are in the way from getting getting like a really big infrastructure package for internet done?
1: That is a great question. I think if I had the, a, a true answer that would be applicable, I probably wouldn't be in journalism, I'd probably be in <laughs> politics or I'd be running the world. I don't know, it's, it's, um, it's a really, I mean, it, it's a very difficult question figuring out why Something that everyone agrees is needed hasn't been deployed, hasn't been effectively deployed. Um, you know, like I said, uh, President-elect Biden has a, a plan at least, uh, which is something the Trump administration hasn't has failed to produce in its in the its four years. Um, so that's encouraging. Um, we'll see how that that works and how it survives through through Congress. Um, a lot of that's going to depend on whether or not I think the Democrats have control over the Senate, um, and and how far he can go with that. And so, uh, it, that's a step in the right direction. Like having having funding is one thing, but there are real sort of uh, logistical problems, right? In the rural in rural America, where uh, internet or broadband access is difficult to come by, you know, a lot of it it comes down to uh, just difficulties laying down the lines necessary to Mm -hmm. offer internet access right i think it's a little bit easier in urban areas where the internet infrastructure is already in place cost is just the real factor right but you know in uh you know the appalachians the in, in iowa we had we had a reporter go out to iowa uh to sort of look at the issues there and you know a lot of it is frankly a lot of it's bureaucratic there are uh there's there's a national map that sort of details where there isn't where there is or isn't broadband access. And that map has been widely panned by pretty much everyone about uh, for being inaccurate to the point where, you know, if one house has broadband access, that map shows that that entire city or the district or area around it also has broadband access, which may not be true. And so that, uh, that, that inaccurate information, the inaccurate, like we don't even know where the problem is, I think is the... Um, it's sort of a bigger dilemma. Uh, so, if we don't know what the problem is, we can't adequately fund uh, solutions to to remedy that. And so, I think that's that's just one of sort of many little nuances that that are that serve as stumbling block blocks or obstacles towards getting more folks broadband access.
0: And the the remaining folks who don't have broadband access is is not a significant enough share of the marketplace that the companies have not been willing to lobby hard enough to, to close that gap. I mean, it reminds me of electrification in the 1930s.
1: Yes. And that was, I think, uh, uh, the, the plan, I think, under the Obama administration was the idea was basically to follow the same model of, of making electricity uh, basically a uh, access to everyone, right? To give everyone access to broadband, just like electricity. Um, it's a lot more difficult to, to kind of lay this stuff down in, uh, in certain areas and you know we don't necessarily have monopolies or huge companies with uh, with the resources to do it and and for a lot of these regions there isn't a business case unfortunately the the population is too small uh, to really justify the expense of laying down basically digging up roads and, and land bearing in cables cable lines and then connecting you know two or three dozen, households right these are mm. these businesses tend to favor far more crowded population centers because that's where they can make their money
0: everybody. You're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Roger Ching today about the digital divide and about technology and the pandemic. Roger, just to stay with this infrastructure issue for a second, you had a story up about uh, 5G. Mm-hmm. And particularly, and I read in our, an interview with you a story you wrote in which you said, you know, 5G is still, there's, there's some evolution to come on that, but people are very excited about it. And at the same time, and I think, this is kind of a, uh, a symbol of our times right now. There's an active sort of conspiracy around 5G. Can you take me inside to, I, I, I go carefully into this conspiracy world, but these days it's a constant feature of our discussion around technology and the virus.
1: Absolutely, this, this was a conspiracy. There are a lot of conspiracy theories around 5G. There are obviously a lot of questions about whether or not 5G is dangerous to your health, right? And the fact of the matter is, and it's not satisfying is that we don't have conclusive evidence one way or the other, but uh, it it doesn't seem to be any more dangerous than 4G or 3G, um, despite a lot of hype about the fact that the the 5G networks run on a higher frequency, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a bit of uh, an incomplete uh, picture of what 5G is. Some of it does, uh, a lot of it does not. And so uh, one of the earlier conspiracy theories that that happened, started early in the during the lockdown, uh, was uh, this linkage between 5G and the coronavirus, and that somehow 5G was uh, propagating the spread of the coronavirus. And I just want to be clear um, that that is not true, that there is no linkage between the two. Um, I, I did watch a couple of the like the YouTube videos that, that sort of described it, and it's very interesting. Uh, if you don't know much about five G, and, and frankly, who does? It's it's a very technical wonky thing, and obviously, mm-hmm. it's my job to understand it. But it's not my it's not everyone's job to understand it. When you're watching one of these videos, you, you've got you've got sort of a, a British narrator who says he's he's uh, he left a, a high profile carrier, and he wanted he he wants to sort of come clean about the the impact, and and to talk a little bit about how. The potential radiation from five G makes you more susceptible to coronavirus. A lot of this stuff sounds super convincing, um, and if I if I didn't know some of the nuances about the technology, I would at least consider it plausible. But uh, there were there are enough things about it that I knew were wrong or false or just blatantly lies that I, I knew that this was not legit. But I could see how this stuff spread. I mean, in in the U K, it got so bad that. Um, folks were burning down uh, cell towers and they were harassing really? in some cases, assaulting telecom technicians uh, for just doing their jobs. Some of, some of these cases, not even working on 4G antennas or equipment, they're just basically regular telecom guys just working on cell towers that didn't have 5G on them. But folks were so worked up about this, they were
0: actually harassing and, and assaulting these folks. Well, how do you see that? Is that a, a sort of, a moment of time in which there was just a lack of understanding of COVID and people yeah, were definitely. parking that. in. It's like two things you don't understand and you somehow marry them together.
1: That's exactly it. I think early on, this, this happened early on. We, we don't see a lot of it now, but uh, early on in the pandemic, this was really March, April, May, uh, we, we definitely saw it, in, especially in the UK, there was, there was a lot more folks who actually took action here in the U.S., uh, I believe the FBI uh, issued a a warning for uh, carriers to be mindful that their their equipment might get sabotaged or, or attacked. I don't think it ever I don't think there was an instance here in the U.S. where that happened. Uh, but the fact that a warning even had to be issued that people that it was a credible enough threat that folks would take action to uh, you know just damage or destroy a 5G tower because they were worried about coronavirus it sort of speaks to just how that misinformation was able to proliferate, um, mostly on the internet.
0: Well, let's stick with that a little bit because it's, it's now got an actual name, this infodemic that we've been uh, living with. It's something the WHO has has warned us about as an actual feature of this coronavirus. And now for the last three months and continuing on today, it's also interlaced with our electoral system and our democracy in the United States, not only the United States, but certainly in the United States. Let's talk a little bit about social media and the infodemic over these last eight months. Um, anything surprised you?
1: Uh, not really. I mean, the, the, the last two or three years. Every
0: every expert I ask that question, they always give me the same answer. And with the same yeah. look on their face. Not really, not surprising, but you seem a little surprised.
1: Ah. Uh, not really. No, in terms of the uh, I, I would say with the like the five the 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 five g coronavirus conspiracy theory, the way that spread, mm-hmm. I guess it when I saw some of folks that I've interacted with, uh, you know friends or acquaintances, when I see them posting those stories on social networks social media, that does surprise me a bit. Um, but in terms of sort of the broader idea of misinformation misinformation being carried, by social media no that's not surprising we've we've dealt with this we dealt with this really from the the last election over the last four years we've you know we've reported extensively on how you know russia north korea china have have used bad actors foreign actors who have used social media to to instigate issues not necessarily to you know drive an issue one way but oftentimes fomenting dissent by Mm -hmm. um by spurring both sides of an argument, whether it's something like gun control, uh, you'll, have, uh, you'll have folks who are both supporting anti-gun supporters and, and gun control supporters or uh, and, and, and gun supporters at the same time. And really the, the idea there is to um, foment dissent and chaos. Doesn't matter what the point is or what the issue is or what the, what the perspective is uh, from a personal level, it's just getting people worked up and angry.
0: So, so that model was in place and well understood by people who want to stir up social dissent before the pandemic hit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That was that was well in place. You saw companies like Facebook over the last uh, year and a half really talk about uh, cutting back, cutting some of the the spread of misinformation. Uh, and and one of the one of the ways they did it was to encourage folks to. Uh, Focus more on groups, private groups, uh, as opposed to getting all their information from news feeds. But unfortunately, the the side effect of uh, joining private groups is th- those groups become an echo chamber for misinformation. Mm. Uh, there, you know, we we profiled, we uncovered one one group that was titled, you know, Justice for George Floyd, uh, which you think would be something related to, to racial justice it turned out to be basically a haven for racist and uh just racist racist dialogue um and that's what we found and these are these are a lot harder for the social networks to to stop and to stamp out than just your your regular run-of-the-mill misinformation found on a newsfeed and so they're in in trying to solve that problem of the the newsfeed they they. It, Facebook, in particular, inadvertently created a whole different problem with folks basically hiding in their own tiny private echo chambers. Mm.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about the scale of this issue. If you're Facebook or Twitter and you sort of say, as they have this year, OK, we're going to actually work hard to try to, to give the consumer resources here so that they don't get misled, particularly in the context of a virus. What's the scale? What's the sort of labor scale of them trying to actually do that? Do you have a sense of that?
1: Uh, You know, it's obviously it's it's billions upon billions of posts. Uh, The scale is to the point where they have Facebook in particular has a huge staff of human betters who go around uh, and you know stamp out misinformation or label it. Uh, But that that is a drop in the bucket. Um, and, And you know they often talk about artificial intelligence and using ai to uh be a bit more predictive and proactive about stamping out misinformation but that stuff that's where uh oftentimes they get stuff wrong right the they'll they'll uh, they'll censor the wrong information or they'll uh you know or they'll miss things because ai is still learning it's still kind of evolving so mm-hmm. um but it's a massive problem both uh, facebook in particular twitter as well. But Facebook, because of just the billions upon billions of, of daily users on that platform, it's it's a really tough problem to grapple with.
0: And uh, in the last, uh, I'm not sure exactly what date this happened, but you know, Twitter started putting up uh, warnings, basically misinformation warnings um, on the tweets of the president of the United States, not only him. And that is... Uh, I guess for many people, that's too long, you know, that took way too long to happen. An act like that makes me wonder if we aren't headed invariably towards greater government regulation. And yet, there's been a lot of reticence for government to get into the regulatory space on, you know, First Amendment grounds, I suppose, and also the powerful sort of market position of the tech industry. Um, I don't have a really well-formed question here, except just to sort of get your thoughts a little bit on the possibility. Again, we've seen two different aspects of this this year, the COVID-19 infodemic and the election infodemic. It seems like we have all the evidence we need that in a thriving democracy, there still should be greater oversight to make sure people aren't fed lies.
1: Absolutely. There is no question that there will be regulations for these tech companies. Uh, they're basically facing criticisms from both sides of the aisle. Right? Democrats have raked these companies over the coal for allowing misinformation to be spread, sometimes from our president, uh, without doing anything, and really until recently without doing anything. The Republicans, on the other hand, have long contended that these companies have a bias against conservative voices that have, they've censored uh, conservative voices. And so really they're, they're kind of facing heat from both sides. Uh, these, these companies have been at, in DC, these executives have been in DC multiple times. In fact, uh, Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg will be in DC tomorrow uh, mm. for, for another Senate hearing to discuss their handling of that New York Post story that on Hunter Biden. Right. Um, and just just uh just two weeks back the the social media companies were in Congress to talk about section two thirty, which is this clause uh, that essentially gives these companies immunity legal immunity for anything that's posted on their platform. Hmm. Uh, and you know most uh this is actually one thing I think President Trump and president-elect Joe Biden agree on is that there needs to be a reworking or removal of Section 230. And so you can see that there will definitely be, regardless of of, how, uh, of who's in charge or what, uh, you know, what party's in charge of Congress, it's clear that there will be some regulations that there will be more enforcement of these tech companies. So the idea or the time when these tech companies were considered darlings of America, American economy, mm-hmm. um, that's long past, mm-hmm. that's long gone. Folks are a lot more skeptical they're a lot more aware of how their personal information is being exploited by these companies. And so you'll you'll start to see more regulations. We saw it with the EU already. Uh, we saw it in California with, with some of the privacy regulations put in place there. But I think from a national level, we'll see more regulations. The real question is just mm. how, how much teeth will be behind these regulations? Because these companies are, are very smart. They've uh, they basically have, you know, they've thrown up the white flag, they know regulation's coming. So they want to have a hand in crafting that regulation. Um, and as we've seen over the last couple of years, these companies are a lot more savvy about their businesses than Congress is. So it it'll be very interesting to see mm-hmm. how the regulation's crafted and whether or not it's done in a way that still somehow benefits the tech companies.
0: Something really interesting in the way you frame that too is and it seems like it's still sort of personal privacy issues that legislators are reacting to, you know, where, so my sense would be, we have all the evidence we need in this last nine months that social media is tremendous, can be a tremendous resource to society, particularly a social resource, like truly what it was meant to be like a social resource in a time in which we're all distant, but also... A really dangerous um, source of spreading conspiracy that has real life and death impacts in the public health space. That would be sort of my case, but you think that sort of the personal, the privacy issue, is is still the the live the most live wire in terms of forming regulatory a new regulatory environment.
1: I think it's there'll be multiple tracks. I think hmm. the, the privacy aspect will be a big one uh, that I think that was already on the table. I think when right. California passed its laws, that sort of got the ball rolling for a, a broader national discussion on that. But uh, you're right to the point where there will be a discussion about how content is regulated or controlled on these platforms. The discussion about Section 230, something will likely be done about that, and that'll have a huge impact on what kind of content is posted and and how much control and how much uh, liability these companies have for the content, for the misinformation that gets posted on these sites.
0: Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID calls. We're talking about old- technology, social media, digital divide today with Roger Ching. Um, I wanted to ask you something else. You know, it's, it's become so, I mean, we were already connected with our devices, and many of us, like I've been teaching online for 15 years. It's, some of these things are not brand new, um, but I do find personally that I've had to really work hard to taper off at the end of the day. To, to get off social media, to, to wind down. And I wouldn't go so far as to call it digital addiction, but I know this is something that's really been out there. I mean, people are, it's because of our work, we are in front of the screens, we're in front of our devices, we're connected now much more than um, we were even previously. Um, and it's something that I myself and friends and family have talked about, you know, like, how do you just draw those boundaries and barriers? You're seeing that out there in the society more generally, and that term addiction is a a strong one in this context, but, I mean, people suffering personal health effects from being online too much in the pandemic?
1: I I would say that addiction is actually, it's probably not too strong a word, I think, for a lot of folks that Mm. there is a legit addiction. Uh, I've been writing about this, you know, Long before the pandemic, for for years we've been talking about our uh, digital addiction and the need, oftentimes, for for a digital detox. There was uh, one. There's one incident that I, I remember. I was actually having uh, surgery on my arm to remove something, I, and I was awake. It was fine. It was a minor thing. It wasn't like health. It didn't. It didn't really threaten my health. Um, but there was enough anesthesia on my arm that I couldn't really feel anything. And I I, I asked the doctor, "Hey, can I check my phone? Because I was just so." And, and, you know, the doctor looked at me with his scalpel in hand and was like, no, don't move. Because <laughs> obviously that's not something you do during surgery. Yet here I was thinking, hey, can I just check my email? And yeah. so, like, at that point I kind of figured, I, yeah, I yeah, probably have a yeah, problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we've got things like terms like doom scrolling, right, which I'm guilty of, where you, you just scroll through oh. Twitter to see all the headlines and just get depressed um, and that I think that is a, a good sort of illustration of the problem because there are folks who, we know this is bad. We know scrolling through social media and, and looking at the negative headlines that are out there all the time is bad for you, but you can't stop. Um, and so that's, it's definitely um, a, a real issue. I mean, I've I definitely um, advise folks to, you know, take time off, you know, disconnect for long stretches it's a lot more difficult now in this environment because we're, a lot of us are working from home and that blurring of the lines between mm-hmm. work and, and, and life really does make things a lot more difficult to, to kind of put the phone down. I mean, I'm still, frankly, as I'm feeding my baby, I'm still one hand with the spoon and food. The other hand is on my phone looking at my emails because they're buzzing nonstop. So it, um, it's, it's definitely a problem. And I think the, the pandemic has, has made things a lot worse for folks
0: it, it certainly has because one could cite very good reasons to to literally never disconnect you, you know i mean and i you read these stories about families who um you know they've got every room in the house somebody's either doing classwork or they're working and they're texting each other within their own house but i mean it, we're in this sort of constant communication mediated communication environment these days and i I guess I wonder, you know, is there good evidence? I'm sure people are studying this right now that um, our brains were already being rewired for the sort of the jolt that we get from those, you know, the, that constant source of information coming in. I can only imagine that it's been greatly amplified in this time.
1: Absolutely. You know, everything from the the kind of the this, the mental kick that you get from like likes and engagement on your posts. Uh, to FOMO, FOMO sort of a big, right? Fear of missing out. That that's sort of a big element for for people who want to stay hooked into social media. Um, that's it's it's a real it's a real problem.
0: Mm. You mentioned doom scrolling, and I have to just give a shout out. I mean, a lot of the people who listen to COVID calls are disaster researchers. That's their job, and so. They almost wear the doom scrolling as a badge of honor because we're it's kind of our keeping up with the disaster and the and this is also connected to the fear of missing out, as you said. If you're following the pandemic literally in real time, it it is a news story which is global, national, and hyperlocal literally evolving 24-7. So if you look away from it for a day, you miss a lot.
1: Absolutely, and you know, as a uh, as a reporter, as a running a news organization that's been sure. covering this for the last nine months, ten months, uh, you know, we stay on top of all the latest, uh, whether you know vaccines come out, whether the the cases have hit a new benchmark. So we're constantly monitoring this stuff, and so we're we're forced to doom scroll just like the rest of you guys, and it's uh, it's tough, it's exhausting, and um, unfortunately, you know, I think that's the the, the the bigger problem is that there doesn't seem to be an end to it. There's no real, there's no end game at this point. It just, it just sort of is
0: our, uh, our reality now. Just to tie back to our previous discussion about regulation. I know, you know, before this year, there was again, some attempt by the companies, tech companies like Apple, but also the social media companies to provide some resources for consumers Um you know, options to turn your screen black or to turn off, um, you know, um, announcements and things and things like that. And I haven't heard much about that conversation. It seems like everybody's everything's been swamped into this sort of broader conversation at this time. But again, is that a space for potential regulation on the the actual technology side, on the the machine side itself,
1: in terms of machine usage? That's an interesting question. Uh, you did. You you're right. In Apple and Google have introduced a number of different uh, like screen time type apps that basically mm-hmm. give you a report on how much you're using. Um, yeah. In, in terms of uh, uh, like light that you know they're they're turning to blue light at night. There's so there's little things that they've done. I don't know if regulation is in the cards for for mm-hmm. tech usage. I think uh, given that we talked about sort of privacy, we talked about misinformation as right targets for regulation i think those are probably what are going to be the priorities i think in terms of usage everyone everyone acknowledges that we probably all use technology too much but there isn't really a great solution and i don't know uh regulating usage would be something that consumers frankly would want
0: so well and sometimes when those and i get those announcements your screen time of this week your first time I ever saw that, I my reaction was, oh, I'm, I'm working harder. Good. And then I realized like, that's not, it's not actually telling me this is a good thing. <laughs> well, it tells you in a neutral way. I mean, you interpret it however you, however you want to. Your employer might be happy that your screen time has gone up in a week. Um, we're almost up on time, Roger. I want to get one little last question in for you so we don't end on the doom scroll. And th- this is also a time, um, I talked on Friday um, with one of the founders of the uh, Viral Art Project. This is a time of tremendous uh, creativity. And there's even been sort of uh, internet sensations. That's not a new thing, but like pandemic oriented internet sensations have popped up in this moment. Do you think the the marketplace is reacting to that? Are we going to see, is this... We're gonna see even new platforms, more exciting platforms, emerge out of this that allow people to take creativity into their own hands?
1: That's a great question. And I think for a lot of folks who have been bottled up or stuck in their homes with very little to do, um, that oftentimes is a, a recipe for new creative ways of expression. I think platforms like TikTok are a prime example of where some of that creativity where, where it's manifesting. Uh, you're seeing people kind of go viral, and then you see a confluence of uh, creative expression, but also politics, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, TikTok. Um, you know, these K-pop stands have used TikTok to uh, to sort of drive uh, news cycles when it comes to election. Whether it's you know uh, overinflating the number of folks at a Trump rally, uh, you know, that I think it's it's taken it's taken a completely different form and you're right, I think it is a a reaction to what's going on with the election, what's going on with the pandemic. Um, And it's sort of a a sort of statement of our times.
0: I love that sentence that you just said, like limitless creativity of this time, and even the creation of new language, K-pop stands driving the news cycle. It's just not things I wouldn't have expected this year, but the technology is there. People have learned to protest and also to bring protest and creativity together in these in these digital spaces.
1: Exactly. It's a it's a fascinating time to be alive.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, Roger Cheng, I, I want to thank you so much for your time on COVID calls today, and we'll keep up with your writing on CNET News. And um, thanks for all the work you do, keeping us, you know, apprised of all these of all of these changes. With a change of administration, uh, and a lot of the discussion with new cabinets going to be tech focused. I'm sure you're going to have a very busy couple of months ahead.
1: Oh yeah, it uh, it hasn't slowed down so far this year. I don't expect it to slow down anytime soon. Just a thanks reminder, for having me. really appreciate
0: it. You bet. So, it's just a reminder to everybody: you can uh, catch COVID calls every weekday at five PM. Tomorrow, I'll be talking to uh, Ryan Hagen, who's been on COVID calls before. Disaster sociologist. will catch up with him and some exciting research that he's been doing. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at five o'clock.